0: You're listening to the Agony Column news report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more 5 days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony.
1: The Golem's life began in the hold of a steamship. The year was 1899. The ship was the Baltica, crossing from Danzig to New York. The Golem's master, a man named Otto Rotfeld, had smuggled her aboard in a crate and hidden her among the luggage. Rotfeld was a Prussian Jew from Konin, a bustling town to the south of Danzig. The only son of a well to do furniture maker, Rotfeld had inherited the family business sooner than expected, on his parents' untimely death from scarlet fever. But Rotfeld was an arrogant, feckless sort of man, with no good sense to speak of and before five years had elapsed, the business lay before him in tatters. Rotfeld stood in the ruins and took stock. He was 33 years old. He wanted a wife, and he wanted to go to America. The wife was the larger problem. On top of his arrogant disposition, Rotfeld was gangly and unattractive and had a tendency to leer. Women were disinclined to be alone with him. A few matchmakers had approached him when he'd inherited, but their clients had been from inferior families, and he'd turned them away. When it became clear to all what kind of businessman he really was, the office had disappeared completely. Rotfeld was arrogant, but he was also lonely. He'd had no real love affairs. He passed worthy ladies on the street, then saw the distaste in their eyes. It wasn't very long before he thought to visit old Yehuda Shalman. Stories abounded about Shalman, all slightly different, that he was a disgraced rabbi who had been driven out of his congregation that he'd been possessed by a Dibbuk and given supernatural powers, and even that he was over a hundred years old and slept with demon women. But all the stories agreed on this. Shalman liked to dabble in the more dangerous of the cabalistic arts, and he was willing to offer his services for a price. Barren women had visited him in the dead of night and conceived soon after. Peasant girls, in search of men's affections, bought Shalman's bags of powders and then stirred them into their beloved's beer. But Rotfeld wanted no spells or love potions, he had something else in mind.
0: Helene Wacker is a writer who lives in San Francisco. Her first novel is The Golem and the Ginny. Thank you for joining me, Helene.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Rick.
0: This is such a superb book, and it must have required research on a, in a variety of different areas. As mm-hmm. It reads like a seamless whole, but when I started to... Pull it apart. I realized you have supernatural research, you have historical research in several different periods. When you approach the project, talk about how you approach the research.
1: Um, I approached the research at the beginning, um, sort of. Uh, I just dove in. I I didn't really understand the scope of what it was I was trying to do at the very beginning, and that's probably a good thing. Um, I don't know if I would have felt too daunted at the very beginning. But I knew that I had a lot of learning to do. And I would say the first two years that I was working on the book, it was almost 50-50 research to writing. Um, so that first year, I was living in New York, and I knew that I was not going to be in New York for that much longer. Um, so, and I, I was uh, acting. Columbia University at the time, so I had the good fortune of of having access to all of Columbia's library resources. So I just went in and photocopied as many things as I could find in the archives about life in 1899 in New York, in the the Jewish community in the Lower East Side, in uh, Little Syria, which is where the financial district is now. Um, Just everything I could find about just socially, what it was like just just to live, to walk around on the streets. And as I wrote the book, I would discover sort of little pockets of research that I had to do in order to sort of really set a scene or be like, okay, someone needs to meet someone at a particular time. How do people, how do immigrant families, you know, working class know what time it is? Do they all have pocket watches or is that only sort of a a, a rich person's uh, thing? Was that that common among, you know, common people? Um, And the answer is... A lot of the time, you went into the pharmacist on the corner, and they had a a clock on the wall, and so that's how you knew what time it was. Um, so little stuff like that, and a lot of the research that I ended up doing, I either, you know, cut that uh, bit of the book, or sort of researched myself out of a good idea. It it became like a a bottomless pit sometimes, and it's it became very easy to procrastinate by researching, and that's something that I've, I've talked to a number of other writers who've done historical projects, and they're like, yeah, you have to sort of pull back at some point and say, you, you can't know everything, and at this point, you're, you're just stalling, so get get to it.
0: You talked about researching the portion set New York, mm-hmm. where which is where most of the story is set, but you also have portions set in Europe uh, mm-hmm. before some of the characters come to America and in Syria, ancient Syria. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk about deciding how you orchestrated those kind of other bits of historical research as well.
1: Well, the you, you mentioned the uh, Eastern European research and, and uh, there's one particular character's backstory that's set in sort of i guess the most of it from 1850s to 70s 80s in um uh the prussian empire and i i sort of learned the hard way that if if you can avoid writing about that time period in in prussian history at all you're 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 better off it's it's just a mess it's the most it's it's republics and breakaway republics and uprisings and and city-states, and no one knew who their leaders were at any particular time, and the currency kept changing, and the borders were just completely in flux. And so that was was a real brain teaser. Uh, Researching Bedouin culture in ancient or, I guess, like six to eight hundreds Syria was um, daunting as well. And I ended up using a lot of uh, scholarly resources. And uh, there's a magazine um, it's called Saudi Aramco World that had a lot of uh, uh, pertinent articles and, and uh, especially on uh, caravan culture. There was a whole bit that I cut from the uh, first few drafts of the book about uh, the genie. Following a caravan, and he actually disguised him. In one version, early version, he disguised himself as human and rode with the caravan for a while. And the caravan was attacked. And I'd read all of this stuff about caravan defense and how they would circle, like 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 the old west, circling the wagons and, and putting you know unloading all the animals and putting all the, the the boxes sort of around to make a barrier, and then having the animals lie down on the inside because the animals were so, were more valuable to them than than their cargo, and so. Uh, um, and I used all that. And then it was like this whole 40 page thing. And I realized I had just gone on a complete tangent and there was no real use for this. And so I cut it. Um, it, it was slightly heartbreaking at the time. But, uh, but yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of scholarly articles, again, from, from the uh, library resources that I could find were very, very helpful.
0: The title of this book is, in a sense, a spoiler for what (laughs) it's about. It's about a a golem and a a genie who both arrive in uh, 19th century New York and have to, to find their ways. And each of those creatures themselves must have required some research because or either that or you did a good job in setting up the rules. So I'd like you to talk about researching something that doesn't, necessarily actually exist mm-hmm. and then writing about it as if it does exist and setting up rules for your supernatural creations that will have to stay steady through the book.
1: Right. That was that was a hard part. Um and as for the research, I did as much I was sort of careful and I may have been overly careful to do only as much research as I needed before I felt like my characters, the, the golem and the genie, were grounded in sort of the, his, the, the folklore tradition of, you know, the cultural tradition. I didn't want to divorce them each from the cultures that they came from, so, you know, the golem uh, being sort of the, the uh, Jewish version of a Frankenstein's monster, a, a person made of clay, and a genie in, in um, Arabic folklore and, and, uh, and in Islam being a, a, a spirit made of fire. Um, I, I, I didn't want them to feel like they just sort of arrived completely out of my head. I wanted them to feel like they were grounded in myth and tradition. Uh, but at the same time, I wanted them to be my own. And part of that was, it was made easier by, when I did read all the different versions of the old tales, realizing how many inconsistencies there were just within... Uh, the different versions, and so it, 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 I, it, at one point I'd been very concerned about, I have to be right about it, I have to, you know, my golem has to be like all the other golems. Well, there is no, you know, sort of template golem, they're all different, even in the old stories, and the same is true with Jin, um, and so I, that sort of freed me up uh, to set my own rules. As for how the rules developed, a lot of it came out of necessity. I I realized one thing that I realized was I was going to have a language problem, that everyone, you know, I had one side of the book speaking Yiddish, the other side of the book speaking Arabic. So how would my two main uh, characters, when they do finally meet up, how do they communicate to each other? And I, so I I developed these rules in in which... um, uh, the, the result of which is is that they understand and speak all languages, which led to some interesting possibilities, not just with each other, but with everyone else in New York. There's uh, the, the Golem has to keep herself uh, from, responding to other people in their own languages because it wouldn't make sense that a Jewish girl on the Lower East Side would be able to speak Norwegian if some someone you know yelled Norwegian at her on the street near the docks she, she you know if she's not careful she'll reply in the same language because she understands but if she wants to stay hidden that's just uh, that's just too remarkable that, that some young girl would know Norwegian and that would sort of blow her cover so, with each rule, there were sort of—it was also like like the rule of un, unintended side effects, and so I'd have to take those into account as well. And uh, and it required a lot of going back and double-checking and triple-checking and saying, okay, you know, going through a particular chapter and and making sure, almost like a continuity editor in a movie, that all the pieces fit together correctly and that I had played by my own rules— when, when I had my uh, characters interacting with each other and with humans.
0: Now, one of the things that, uh, that interested me is just from the get-go, was the title just your own inspiration? Did you say Gollum and the Ginny, 19th Century New York? There's my book.
1: You, you know, it almost was as, 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 um, as plain as that at the very beginning. Um, and the title, I've gotten a lot of comments on the title, both, uh, people who love it and people who, if they don't know exactly what a golem or a genie is, don't know what, you know, what is going to be inside this book. And in my mind, it was never anything other than that from the very, very beginning. I I tried to think of other titles, but the book just resisted any other title I could, you know, throw at it. The way that the book got started um, was that I was working on this uh, linked collection of short stories while I was at Columbia, and they were stories from my family, my Jewish family, and my, my husband's Arab-American family. And the stories had... There were a couple good ones, and the there were like five or six in total. The rest were, as far as I was concerned, subpar. And... I was having a lot of trouble bringing them to life. And I realized that one of the main problems, besides the fact that I just wasn't a very good writer yet, one of the main problems was was that I was having a really hard time fictionalizing these stories that I had known for so long that were either like my family lore – or my husband's and I'd known him, you know, for I think a dozen or, or thirteen years at that point. So the stories were pretty in, ingrained in my memory as well, and there was just that lack of sort of distance and perspective that that you really do need to sort of pull out the details that you need, and fictionalize the rest in order to make it fit. So I had a, I was complaining about this to a friend, and she said, you know, you are a total geek. That is, you know, you grew up on Star Trek and Doctor Who and, you know, Bradbury and, and, and Tolkien and whatever. And she said, you are always reading that stuff. You're always talking about using the fantastical in literary fiction in class and genre-bending. Why aren't you writing like that? That's, that's like your bread and butter. Why aren't you... You need to do some of that. She said, just take a break and try something. And I was like, okay, so if instead of my Arab American boy and my Jewish girl, what if I had a genie and a golem? And almost, you know, like that day, I sort of had, it just sort of immediately clicked. And it really felt like that was the missing piece. That was what what had been missing this whole time. And when I was thinking about, okay, where would these two meet? If I'm going to have these two characters, where are they going to meet? And I, I thought they would probably meet, because I wanted to do an immigrant story, the coming to America story. So if you look at the sort of the Venn diagram of, of when, Arab Amer- when uh, Syrian uh, immigration, sort of the heyday of Syrian immigration to the U.S. in the, in the 19th century, and uh, Jewish immigration, they, they, they sort of... Uh, from you know, eastern europe they they sort of cross over in like the 1890s to 1910s and so i sort of almost arbitrarily picked 1899 i said well i'll start there and and see where i get and i thought it was just going to be a, you know a cute little short story or a novella or something and then i you know i brought you know the first 15 pages to workshop and they said you realize this is a book you have a book here and i was i was sort of startled uh, but also sort of went, yeah, I guess I do. So I'll work on this for a while. And that, you know, seven years later, there was my book.
0: (laughs) One of the things I think that uh, makes this book so enjoyable is uh, the fast pace to the storytelling, even though to a certain extent, we don't have like a lot of incident it mo- feels like it moves really fast because you have so much to tell us the different histories of all the characters mm-hmm. i'd like you to talk about creating that fast pace and uh, using the different backstories of your characters to keep us interested in- and riveted to the page
1: um well the fast pace took a lot of editing that was something that was not sort of created at the beginning i think but um I laid the book down in stages. I would start at the beginning, get a few chapters in, realize what I needed to change and go back and start at the beginning again and, you know, edit heavily up until where I had stopped and then write a few more chapters sort of – it, it, and it was this this process of being able to just see where I was in front of me and and realizing how many threads I had set up and how they were all going to need to intersect at various bits. I had a uh, uh, a flow chart at one point that I'd written out with everyone's plot and and arrows and colors and and you know dotted lines and and how they were all going to come together. and it, it changed as I went. I would change it all the time. But as long as I could see where I was going, even with where I was going to go, was going to change, I felt like I had enough momentum to continue forward. But then I would hit some roadblock and say, oh, well, I've got to get him over here. And he can't know about, you know, if if he's going to It just sort of it felt like playing a, a giant game of chess against myself, like, OK, if this character um, has to be in the dark about what's happening over here. Then he can't be on this street when the other person, you know, and so uh, it was a lot of moving pieces around, but trying not at the same time trying as hard as it could not to make it feel like the author's hand was reaching in and moving pieces around. So that just logistically was one of the hardest things about the book to, to piece together.
0: It really seems uh, very clockwork, and it's, it's quite enjoyable to read. And, of course, one of the things that makes it so enjoyable are the great cast of characters. Mm. So let's talk about creating these characters. Your two title characters <laughs> are a lot of fun, but they're not human, yet you want them to be accessible to your human readers. Yep. Talk about uh, turning supernatural creatures into engaging characters.
1: It was... Um it was a fun process. It was a little difficult at times. Uh, I really learned a lot about how to create a character just from the two of them. Uh, the golem, in particular, uh, when I started her off, she was a um, she. She can pass for human, and she can speak and and learn and uh, and, and and all of that, but. In the first version of the book, uh, she felt much more robotic. She felt a lot more uh, aloof and almost like an android in that sort of uh, commander data from Star Trek or or, uh, a replicant from, from Blade Runner sort of way. And it wasn't quite enough for her to be really engaging, that she was so, she had so little understanding of humans. And what I found was that meant that the readers got very impatient with her. My test readers were like, we know that she's having problems, but since we can see exactly what's going on, it just makes us impatient. It makes us want her to to figure it out. And so she just wasn't engaging enough, and I had I had a real crisis about it, and I was like, I have to start over from, from square one with her. And I decided to add in that I was going to change the rules, and this goes back to the the rule making, was um, I was going to go back and and change it so that uh, her when her master dies, uh, which happens uh, at, near the very beginning of the book, I- instead of just being without a master. Um, because she had that one mind controlling her, her being which, which wants to be controlled, she is built to be a servant. Is, is her her mind sort of casts about and looks for someone to be her master, and the result is that she can sense the fears and desires of others, and that really, to me, was when I when I sort of figured that out and decided to to. Um, reinvent her character in that way that really opened her up as a character because she now understood on one level what the people around her wanted but she had absolutely no idea why that she was she became that much more close to humans and could see into them but had no empathy had no true understanding of why people felt the way they did, why people feared the things they feared. So it added a slightly – it made her a little more wise and a little more tragic at the same time, I think.
0: At one point in the story, somebody asks if they think she has a soul. Mm-hmm. And they they think about that a little bit. And this brings up the idea of the human soul in a, as a, something that might be created by um, nurture, not mm-hmm. be the result of – granted to us by nature. And I like the idea of nature versus nurture for the human soul.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, And that came directly from uh, some research that I had done into uh, Jewish mysticism and and, uh, sort of the the lore around golems. And uh, apparently, uh, the the rule around golems is that anything created by a human, created by man, as, as they would have said, uh, cannot be ensouled because only God can can uh, deliver a soul into um, a being. And so if a person kills, destroys a golem, it does not count as murder. It might be an unwarranted act of destruction, but it is not the mark against you that a murder would be. And so you already have this sort of idea of, of a second-class citizen, a second-class being that, that Gets explored a lot, I think, in, in, in science fiction and, and fantasy. Um, I remember, you know, reading a few Robert Heinlein books that had that that, uh, uh, that theme way back in the day. And um, I, I think there's there's a girl. Uh, there's a a book called uh, Wind Up Girl uh, that I haven't read yet. That that uh, by an author named Paulo. I think it's Galupi. Yeah,
0: Paolo Galupi, yeah. the wind-up girl. Right?
1: Yeah, I haven't mm-hmm. read it yet, but I I'm, I think he, he explores some of those same themes as well. And, and it's just this really rich stuff. It's like the questions that we never will really answer, but we just love sort of exploring from different a- angles.
0: And that's one of the things I think this book does well is to explore those questions. But in the midst of giving us a very engaging character, mm-hmm. and all the characters are very engaging. And l- let's let's hop over now to to the genie yep. who has his own. I realize uh, we haven't been
1: talking <laughs> about him. He'd feel left out.
0: <laughs> he would be. That could be uh, tragic for us.
1: Yes, yes. Um, he's he he was a lot of fun to write as well. Um, in in the way that that. I think bad boys can be fun to write, um, and he's uh, be, where where I went with his character. I was like, okay, so he's a creature made of fire. Let's let's go from there. So what would that what would that suggest? Um, sort of impetuousness, uh, changeability, uh, passion, um, and all those you know very uh, sort of ephemeral feeling qualities. Well, what would happen if you took someone who had been used to roaming far and wide and doing whatever he wanted um, in the Syrian desert for hundreds of years and sort of slammed them into a bottle and then released them in 1890s New York, stuck in human form, having to live hemmed in um, amidst this this cacophony of of humans that, that don't make any sense, that play by these crazy rules. That have to do things like wear clothing and go to jobs, and now he's supposed to fit in and, and act like one of them. And just the amount of constraint that that co- puts him under, he's chafing against it constantly while also being aware of the real dangers to himself. Um, if, if and, and so he's, um, very bitter about it, but also very curious and excited about exploring New York. And that to him is his one consolation is that New York is, is an excellent place to go exploring, especially at night. Um, and those were really fun scenes to write him sort of wandering around the city and, 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 uh, uh, being a night owl and, and sort of, uh, exploring the, the darker seamier sides of the city of, of which there were quite a few at that time.
0: Uh, Teddy Roosevelt used to do that. Yes, As, as yes. a police commissioner. Yep, yep. One of the things that, that I thought you handled really well were uh, it seems you really like all your characters, mm-hmm. even the guy who's the nominal uh, and bad guys so mm-hmm. to speak in this has a really interesting backstory and you weave his backstory through this novel too so I'd like you to talk about uh, creating I guess the secondary uh, cast of characters who all are quite memorable and really mm-hmm. intricately uh, talked uh, fleshed out too and weaving their stories in with these you know they're humans we weaving human stories in with inhuman stories
1: mm. Um it was an interesting process trying to decide who my secondary cast was going to be because I knew that it was going to be a decently large cast. And I kept, at the beginning, I was just sort of sort of exuberant and everything sort of had promise and every idea seemed like a great idea. So I had, at one point, just the most ridiculous character list, just as long as your arm. And if I needed someone to go from here to there, I was like, well, I'll just invent this guy and he'll just sort of be in the neighborhood and he'll be, you know, he'll help, you know, one of the main characters with, you know, to to accomplish some task or something. And then I started to realize that every time you introduce a character, you have to account for them. And they can't just be, you know, unless it's just like someone who's got a brief mention and maybe not even a name. Um, Every character, if if you want to really be do the book justice they have to feel like a fleshed out person so at one point I had just this ridiculously Dickensian list of characters and I realized that there were a few of them that didn't really feel like real people so I took two or three characters and sort of squashed them together and made them into one real person and uh that's uh Michael who's um uh one of one of he's a um a social worker who runs a uh, sort of a immigrant house. It's called the, 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 the sheltering house. It's a place for um, Jewish immigrants to sort of uh, get their bearings in America before they, before they sort of go off and, and find jobs and, and their own places to live. Um, he was like literally two or three characters, and I, I sort of combined them all into this one guy. I came about these characters through all different ways. There's one uh, guy whose name is Saleh, who's an ice cream maker, Ice cream, um, Saleh. I ice love cream him. ice cream sale yeah he's one of my favorites and he um, he lives in little Syria and he came about because of this article that I had um, photocopied way back in those early days of, of research Um it was it was uh, it was like New York Daily Tribune someone had sent a reporter off to there's this New neighborhood of Little Syria with with all these Syrian people there, and we don't know what they're like, and we haven't been to the neighborhood, so let's write a very condescending article about them. And so, you know, some article, some writer goes off and and you know, with all these fantasies of Thousand and One Arabian Nights and whatever, and and uh, very flowery, purple, condescending language describes the neighborhood. But in the in the margins, or the sort of in the middle of the. Um, Uh, of the article, someone had put in a a hand drawing of uh, a—it was labeled an ice cream seller, and it's this guy sitting on the stoop next to a cart, and he's churning ice cream in in an old um, uh, wooden churn, and he's got a cloth wrapped around his head. And I looked at him, I was like, who is this guy? And it's just something about—he had this very sad face, and it just seemed like a real— uh, juxtaposition of, of someone you know who's selling ice cream, you know for kids and you know making kids days brighter had this very sad sort of melancholy expression on his face and his I was looking at him and, and I was trying to you know, I was like, who is this guy? And all of a sudden his backstory came to me of who exactly he was. And I just sat down at the computer and I just typed it out and it survived his his backstory survived almost intact from like that first, Just sort of rush of typing to into the book, Um, and I didn't know what role he was going to fulfill. Or and he ends up being a a rather central character, Um, but he felt sort of like a gift that I'd gotten uh, completely out of the blue. And so, sort of the the supporting cast, it really did range the sort of the gamut from. Completely engineered characters, like, you know, tinkered with and, and written and rewritten all the way to someone just popping up out of the blue who ends up just playing this, this uh, very important role in the book. Um, sort of everything happened along that axis. It was, it was, it was a pretty funny process.
0: One of the things that makes this book so enjoyable is your uh, method of storytelling where often the reader will know something that the characters don't and we just uh, – the tension is created while we wait for the character to find that out or, mm-hmm. or wait for our suspicions to be revealed and – uh Ice Cream Ma uh, is one of those characters. I'd like you to talk about creating these kind of tension, plot tension arcs based on what the reader does know, what the characters don't know, and what the characters do know and the readers don't know.
1: Right. It's a, It was a pretty tricky process because I know I've read books where if the author leans on that too heavily, you can get really impatient and just sort of want to throw the book across the room. There's only so much patience I'm willing to give a writer who's going, nya nya, I know something that, that you don't, you know something that the character doesn't. Um, so you have to put something, you have to put a pretty engaging tale behind it um, and, and give them some meat to chew on while they're waiting for the big reveal to be revealed or for the two people to bump into each other who obviously are inevitably going to be bumping into each other. Um, so it really it felt like a high-wire act at times, and uh, I relied a lot on reader feedback to tell me, my, my, like my sort of test readers, uh, to tell me, okay, we're getting impatient, or it's a little too obvious, or that seemed to be out of the blue when that reveal came, so maybe you want to hint a little at it more. It really was almost like um, like product testing. Uh, you know, okay, now, how about now? Okay, how about this version? What about now? And and so uh, it was a lot of trial and error. Uh,
0: I like uh, the way this book explores some really interesting themes without ever being too heavy handed. You're always kind of, this book has a very lighthearted feel. Hmm. But you talk about uh, the importance of things. And one thing that's clearly very important to you and to this novel is the prospect of Naming somebody or naming mm. something. So mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about choosing the names for the characters and the the importance of name choice within the plot itself.
1: Hmm. Uh, I think that goes back to uh, the fairy tale sort of aspect of of the book, uh, or at least the fairy tale and storytelling roots. There's a lot in uh, tales about you know naming things and and. You find the you 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 like the 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 demon or the creature you when you find out their true name you you um steal their power from them, and they can't hurt you anymore and uh one thing I was careful to do was the narrative uh voice the um the they're they're given names that my two main characters, the golem and the genie, are given names in the story um. The genie takes the name Ahmad, and the uh, the golem uh, is given the name Hava. And but when you read the book, the um, uh, they're never called that by sort of the narrative voice. It's always the golem did was doing this, the genie was doing that, and you only hear their names in dialogue. And I wanted to do that sort of to preserve. The fact that they are not human; they are creatures, and to sort of keep that slight distance between them and the rest of the cast, and try to think of other. Um, there's uh, one character who comes to the U.S. I, I won't give away too much. A, a very well, the the the, the devious character, uh, the uh, the the putative villain, uh, comes to uh, New York to and and. Uh, basically worms his way through Ellis Island, uh, causing a lot of destruction in order to get in without being noticed, and gets to the, um, uh, to the desk, to like the desk where they're going to give you the final passport, and the guy looks at this uh, long Yiddish name and looks at him and says, we're going to give you a new name, and gives him this very Americanized shorter name, and that was, in my mind, sort of his comeuppance was that without uh, just all the stories of coming to the, in the U.S. And, and your original name is sort of torn from you and, and that feeling of dislocation and just because some guy behind a desk thought your name was too long and convoluted and so we're going to call you Frank instead of, you know, whatever it is that you came with. And, and, and just the offhanded way that, that um, your history and your identity can be uh, messed with in that way. I I I was that was a, a a sort of a gleeful scene to write because it was sort of the, one of the quintessential immigrant experiences and I was using it to sort of bring this guy down a notch who really needed it and uh, and also and 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 to just sort of add to his burning anger and and uh, uh, and dislocation so yeah
0: he's He's a lot of fun, <laughs> I really enjoyed him, and he and I think all the many of the characters uh work around a theme of uh that I first encountered a billion years ago in Vonnegut mm. of uh be careful who you pretend to be because that is who you mm, will become mother night <laughs> yes, <laughs> and this also applies certainly to the golem and the Ginny because nobody wants to. Neither of them is really able or willing to reveal their true nature. Uh-huh. And so you have a lot of characters who are concealing who they are. The uh, golem can uh, see what people are thinking on the inside, but also see the results of how they behave no matter what they're thinking and, mm-hmm. and uh, considers that the delta between the two, the chain difference between the two, yes. uh, to be important as instructed by her rabbi character. Uh, keeper, uh-huh. So i like you to talk about uh, developing these themes of who we are, who we present, and using the elements of the fantastic to kind of uh, point that up and paint it uh, in bright, dark colors. Hmm.
1: I think in the book that's sort of presented as um, the, the language that, that is used to sort of discuss that is our natures. How far can we deviate from our nature? If, uh, like you said, one of the things that the golem does is she hears people's thoughts and, and hears, like, you know, their worst uh, anxieties and their their sort of their dirtiest longings and secrets. And she sees them going about their day, you know, buying bagels and shaking their neighbor's hands and being these very civilized people on the outside while on the inside they're sort of burning with fears and desires. And, um, so she really does have that insight into the way that people put masks on sometimes. I mean, not even just, you know, and, and not even in a sinister way, but just to function in a society. In order to live together, we have to, um, you know, not act on every desire and not fall prey to every fear. Um, and so that's her uh, education, but at the same time, she wonders how long she can do it herself and how successful she will be at it. And the genie, um, the same way that he has to, in, in some ways more than she does put on this, um, air of civilization and pretend to things that he really does not feel about, um, how to live among people and just the thought of relying on someone for something is just anathema to him. Uh, so that really does go against his nature. And I, I feel like one of the things that was so fun about these characters was that, you know, we could have these, you know, you and I, or anyone, when we talk about these things, it's sort of, it's philosophical. It's, you know, the sort of talk that you would have in college in the dorm at 3 a.m. after, you know, your philosophy 101 class or whatever. How is it that we live in the world? And for these two, it's a matter of functioning. It's, we have to, they have to figure this out in order to go outside and say boo to anyone. Is how do you do it how do you actually put the face on and go outside and say something that you don't feel or you know uh, a small talk how do you, how do you even do small talk it's like that basic for them and that was fun it was fun to just sort of take socialization and, and break it down uh, to its its you know, sort of building blocks and then give them to these two characters to play with and and, and examine
0: this book is filled with... Uh different uh, romantic arcs, and I like Mm -hmm. the way they kind of intersect and fall apart and build back up again. And uh, you have, at at the heart of it, of course, you have the ultimate uh, um, May-December romance with a a genie who's hundreds of years old and a a golem who's uh, maybe three months old.
1: I never thought of it as a May-December romance. That's hilarious. Yeah. But she feels like an older soul than he does sometimes. So, yeah.
0: I would agree with that. But So talk about uh, crafting the different kind of romantic arcs into the supernatural plots and with what's happening on the ground in terms of just getting by in New York.
1: So <clears throat> one thing that made it uh, easier to create their arc, the the Golem and the Genie's arc together, was when I realized that they needed to have uh set times when they saw each other it couldn't just be this like they just bump into every each other every once in a while they had there had to be a reason for them to get together because otherwise they just never would Um, and so i set it up so that the the golem neither of them sleep and in those days, a woman out walking by herself uh, at night after dark was considered either to be a prostitute or no better than one. And so uh, it, it just wasn't done if you were a good girl. You did not go walking out by yourself. And so she was sort of hemmed in in her little boarding house apartment um, and going a little stir-crazy. And then finally she meets the genie, and they have this arrangement whereby... Um, he will take her out walking one night a week just to get her out and show her the city. And that way she has a, a companion, a, you know, someone someone to walk with. And that, when I figured that out, I was like, okay, well, there's there's my structure. That's how they're going to start to get to know each other. And I had, a, you know, a certain number of visits, a certain number of nights, and I could sort of build the relationship slowly um, and... and line up those chapters next to each other and see how the relationship had modulated over the course of the chapters so that, you know, the the very first time they meet, they're extremely wary of each other. By the second time they meet, they're less wary. By the third time they meet, they they know each other well enough that they're starting to maybe bicker a bit. These two bicker a lot. They have their, they come at, at the world from very different perspectives. And, and so, that was one of them. I, had, I hadn't actually planned that. I just realized when I got the, the two of them together that they would just be at lockerheads a lot of the time, just arguing with each other. Um, and it does build into, I would say, a bit of a romance. And, and that's like more toward the end of of that, that progression. Um, but again, it was just modulating and going back and editing and making sure you know tonally is this have I gone too far am I assuming too much have they has it suddenly leapt into romance when really they should still be more um wary of each other so yeah a lot of editing i
0: uh, i thought that you did a really good job at ratcheting back the, the romantic elements mm. uh, to the degree that it was, uh, I, I found it really more enjoyable, I, I think, than maybe had that been heightened more. So you did edit some of that stuff out then. Yeah.
1: I felt of it, I, I thought of it more as a relationship than a romance. And maybe mm. that's, I don't know if that's fair to the word romance because, of course, it's a relationship. But I had someone say to me that she was so grateful that this is a, a reader she was so grateful that um, that I had just had them leap into each other's arms uh, that oh we are the two most beautiful people in this book of course we must fall in love and uh, in, in that slightly um, hackneyed well the structure of the book depends on it sort of way and I really I really did want to give them a real relationship um that, that built over time and that had some actual depth to it once, once it did start to shade possibly into a romance.
0: One of the things that makes this book also so appealing is your sense of world building in that the way you create historical New York for us, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stuff there. It's, you know, it's foreign to me as, uh, you know, the, the planet Mars. <laughs> I might know more about the planet Mars at this point than I do about 19th century New There's York. Fewer
1: restaurants on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> right.
0: uh, so talk about... Fowler's uh, is a lot shorter. <laughs> talk about uh, creating a historical world with these kind of fantastic creatures in, in, a, in a science fiction world-building sense.
1: It, I. There were times I really did have to start, sort of stop and close my eyes and imagine, literally close my eyes and imagine what it would be like from their perspective, either the golems or the genies, or just someone who was, you know, landed on New York, like from, like you know, from Mars or a spacecraft or something. What would they think of this? What would, what would the streets look like to them? What would. You Know just the, the noise on the street, look uh, what would it do to them? What, especially early in the book, when, when the, the two of them really hadn't settled into New York, um, and and the, the golem, when she arrives in New York, she has this sort of harrowing journey, uh, to the Lower East Side where she spends most of a day just stumbling around the city, not understanding anything, not having anyone she can talk to, and just being overwhelmed. Uh, and that was a uh, hard uh, scene to write, to, to get the, the tone of it right, trying to figure out what I could, what she could, what she would assume, what she wouldn't understand at all. And what would just be too much for the reader to try to, you know, describe every little last thing um, you know, that there can be, easily that can start to overwhelm the, the reader too. And so... Um, I really started to rely on the telling detail. Uh, and that was part of the editing process as well, was just, okay, which of these seven details and five adjectives in the sentence is the one that matters the most, and let's you know lean on that one. Um, and that my um, agent helped me quite a bit with um, during the writing process as well as my editor once once it was sold to HarperCollins. Um, there were times in the book uh, that... Especially, sort of the middle of the writing process when I when I finally had you know done all this research about New York and I knew a thing or two and so I was gonna you know tell all of this stuff and. You know the, the golem and the genie are out walking, and it's these long chapters of them, you know, going hither and yon and doing all this stuff. And my um, agent would email me and after reading these chapters and say, "Okay, it's starting to sound like a walking tour of old New York. You're practically giving turn by turn GPS directions. So you might want to cut back a little bit. A little goes a long way. Let's just pare this back and and." That, that sort of pairing back, adding in and pairing back and adding in and pairing back really happened over and over and over again. Um, and and one thing that they sort of hammered into us in Columbia and then was sort of proven again and again was it's always better to add in and then take out. That there is, you're left with a sense of a wider world that beyond what is there on the page um, instead of one that's just sort of a drawn-in scaffold for the story. And that, uh, I, I think, if, if this book feels like a real world, that I built a, a world, it's because there's about 200 pages of material that were eventually cut.
0: <laughs> now, are you working on a sequel to this book or uh, something else completely different?
1: Well, right now, I'm working on... <sighs> I haven't actually started my next fiction project. I have a lot of ideas. I've got a lot of stuff brewing in my head. Um, just the process of getting this one out the door has been so consuming. Um, while I was writing, I sort of, if an idea came to me from for something else, I would stick it in a computer file. I have a file of just story ideas, and now once once um sort of the first flush of, of publication frenzy has, has passed, I'm going to uh, pull up that file and take a look and, and see what still makes sense and what reads like total nonsense. Um, I think a sequel would be fun. I, I, have, uh, I have a few ideas, there were, you know, things that, that could happen. Um, I think something completely different would be fun as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to seeing what I do next, too.
0: I've been speaking with Helene Wecker. Her new novel is The Golem and the Ginny. Thank you for joining me, Helene.
1: Thank you very much, Rick. This was fantastic.